Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Radio. I'm Max Reaper, the editor of Royals Review, and joining me now, as usual, is Sean Newkirk. Sean, how are you doing tonight? Good, good. I'm ready to uh, to get uh, hungover with turkey uh, here in a week from now. So it's Thanksgiving's my favorite, uh, maybe my second favorite holiday after Christmas. But this is my this is my type of season. I, I did want to ask. I saw a tweet of yours uh, responding to an open question. One of those open questions on Twitter. What was your first social media presence on? Oh yeah. What, yeah, was, what was yours? Mine was Zanga. So um, what is Zanga? Because I think I missed that. Oh, yeah, Zanga. So <laughs> it was so Zanga was like, it was kind of like LiveJournal, and maybe people don't know LiveJournal, but it was like, uh, basically, it's like you would post stuff. Like, typically, it was basically like an online journal in a way, and then people could comment on it, and you could comment back, so... It was kind of like a blog. It was one of the first kind of blogs in reality. Uh, there was nothing gimmicky or different about it. It was literally just a blog, but it was kind of one of the first kind of blogs out there, uh, okay. uh, you know, when mostly it was centered around MySpace. But Zanga, it still exists. <laughs> I, I, guess... I, downlo- I downloaded my Zanga, like, history not that long ago. So, I mean, it's huh. still kicking somehow. I guess I thought it was like some sort of Japanese anime. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Yeah. And, and my, yeah. my answer to that question was Prodigy message boards, which just shows how ancient I am. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's like from the 80s. Uh, okay. So that voice you you heard uh, yelling for Zenga is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, how are you? And what was your first uh, social media presence? Uh, also Zenga. Um, but, you know, to be fair, I mean, like some of our listeners and some of our readers probably are just like, yeah, I don't know, like Twitter was my first one. Like, no, Zenga is like is at least – 15 years old uh like 16 17 years like that was that that was its heyday so it's not like you know it's something from yesterday like zanga is is old school maybe not ancient school like yourself but it's zanga is definitely <laughs> old school yeah i yeah. know like, some of the options on that question are like snapchat and i'm like snapchat was like created last week like how can that be first social media presence zanga yeah at least 15 years ago that makes a little more sense but so it it debuted in 99 it says it's dissolved in 2013, but that can't be right because you can still go to Zanga.com and they're talking about Zanga 2.0. So I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's it, we aren't that young, Matt. It's not like we're talking about, you know, well, I'm, yeah, I'm sure someone bought it up and they're, they're looking to to looking for that resurgence and because, uh, yeah. you know, MySpace still operates, too. Right. Like uh, yeah. Sean Parker owns it now. And so uh, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll see a Zanga uh, revival. Yeah, you know, you got to get into the booming economy that is uh, defunct websites or, <laughs> you know, social media sites. 
You know what? They should just add stories, and it'll it'll be good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> call them fleets. Yeah, just call call them fleets, and uh, and, and just be like every other social media uh, app out there. So, yeah. So that's that's a trip down memory lane. Um, well, you know, Royals review isn't defunct, and uh, we still have some uh, Royals uh, semi news to talk about. Dayton Moore addressed the media last week. Uh, and while he didn't have anything major to announce or anything like that, he, he kind of set the tone for the offseason, just kind of previewing what they might do. Uh, the Royals, of course, are coming off four consecutive losing seasons. But despite that, Dayton Moore says now is the time to win, uh, telling reporters, quote, we expect to win next year. Uh, what does that look like? Is it going to be enough wins to make the playoffs? We'll find out. But Matthew, you wrote an article uh, kind of, where you're kind of pretty skeptical of those kind of comments. Can you kind of go into why maybe you don't believe Dayton Moore when he says now is the time to win? Um, there is a fine line. I think that executives have to walk. Um, and on one side of that line is uh, appeasing fans, right? You want as an executive to keep your fans interested and you don't really want to say exactly what your team is going to do. And that's sort of the other side of the line, too, is that you don't want to really give away what your plan is for the offseason. Um, and so executives have kind of a tricky, tricky line to walk there. So I don't think that Dayton Moore is being intentionally misleading or intentionally lying or anything. You know, we all have have watched Dayton Moore's Kansas City career for a long time, and he is surprisingly open and honest about a lot of stuff. But in this particular situation, I simply don't believe him because it's basically just hot air. And it's not Dayton Moore specifically. That's just, I wouldn't believe any general manager in this situation um, helming a club like the Royals. And I certainly don't believe Moore, who has a particularly a particular track record of doing this. So in the article uh, that I wrote uh, this week, I mentioned that um, after the 2018 season, which was 104 losses, I, I believe um, it was, it was awful. It was just a train wreck of a season, 104 losses. They go through the off season. They don't really do anything. They don't really sign anybody. Now they don't trade away like Whit Merrifield or Danny Duffy or anything. They don't, you know, gash the, the team that exists but they also just don't bother trying to improve. So you have this 100 loss team that didn't bother really trying to improve. They didn't make any significant signings uh, or trades or anything. And then in February of 2019, Dayton Moore is like, yeah, we expect to win the division. And that's just a, just a really laughable thing. If you're taking it at face value and you should never take these things at face value. Um, so the Royals could do a lot of different things this offseason, and it's possible that they may be trying to compete, and we'll see that if they make a signing, uh, like a mid-tier signing, and, and that's what I would like rather arbitrarily call somebody who gets signed for like 20 or $30 million or more. You know, in the 20 to $50 million range, I'd call that like mid-tier. If they do that, then that sort of signals that, hey, the Royals are trying to win. But if they don't do that, then, you know, what Dayton Moore says today uh, or this week or tomorrow or whatever just just has no bearing on anything just because it's just it's just GM speak. It's hot air. It's it's and it wasn't even like something that that he really uh, thought 
it, it wasn't something that he uh, emphasized during the press conference, which you can see on YouTube, by the way. The whole press conference is there on the Kansas City Royals YouTube page, um, which is a really kind of interesting way to experience this because we get like um, filtered down versions of this from from writers uh, at the Kansas City Star and MLB.com and The Athletic. It was kind of interesting to see like the whole press conference conducted over Zoom, obviously. Um, but he didn't really like emphasize that they're going to win. It's just like one of the things he said. So I think it's the the TLDR of this is that it's just GM speak. It's meaningless. And what the Royals actually do as far as transactions is going to go way further in explaining the mindset of the club right now than Dayton Moore saying, yeah, we expect to win. Because he says that every year, literally every year. Yeah, and the role of the GM, you kind of have to – I mean, there's a couple – audience he's speaking to number one the fans because presumably they're going to try to sell some tickets next year we don't know how many fans are going to be able to go but they're probably going to have some fans in the stands at some point and they need to give fans at least some hope that look they may not win the world series next year but they do have some expect you know expectancy of of winning games and being better at least um and so i i kind of get that and then i think he's also talking to the team itself i mean i think i think as a player you don't want to be on a team that knows it's going to lose a lot of games and doesn't expect to win games. I think you at least want to, uh, you know, you always want to try your best and you want the team to try its best and, uh, you know, see what happens because you never know. You can get off to a, a lucky start or or uh, maybe but guys play better than they expected. Um, so I think, you know, look, you don't expect a, man, a general manager to go out and say, yeah, we, we're going to be really – we're going to be really terrible next year. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, so I, you know, I, a lot of that, I think you're right. It's just, just Jim speak. On the other hand, Sean, you know, you know, with Theo Epstein stepped down from the Cubs this week, uh, from the time he took over, he took over the Cubs in 2012 by year four, the, the Cubs were in the playoffs. Uh, now the Cubs had been kind of bad and maybe rebuilding a little bit before that, but you know, that's four years he took in the playoffs. When Jeff Luno took over the Astros in 2012, uh, same thing. He got the team in the playoffs in four years as well. They were pretty bad when he took over, and maybe they were some, uh, you know, they had done some rebuilding. But the point is, they both took over those teams, and in four years, had them as con- as contenders. Um, is there maybe some pressure for Dayton Moore to start winning here in year four? I don't. I'm not saying maybe his job is on the line, but at least you know. I'm sure he has an expectation of when they want to win. Um, Do you think that there is maybe there is maybe a little more pressure to start winning this year? Yeah. I mean, particularly since in, so Lunau is always my example, right? When I talk about a team, a GM coming in, because there are a few teams who are as bad as those Astros teams were um, that when Luno kind of hit peak tank, I guess as you could call it, um, those teams stunk. Uh, and it's uh, that's so that's my example of like okay it took Luna yeah four ish whatever years to get there so um, I think that I think that the pressure has got to start mounting at some point you can always kind of lean on the crutch of that um, that he that, you know the Royals won the World Series obviously or went to the World Series twice in fact in fourteen and fifteen and won it in fifteen um, you can always kind of lean on that as a crutch but I mean. At some point, you know, you've got the guy who's, what's it been, 300 lost seasons? Or or I think it's been three and effectively, like, I don't want to get this wrong. Sorry, let me look this up. Just well, it'll be, be sure. 2018 uh, and 19, and then 2020, 
right. was okay. a, t- a year where they were kind of on the way to losing close to yeah, 100 yeah. if they right, had played a full season. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking that. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, he's – and then there's the 97 loss seasons, 95, 91, 90. I mean, there was that kind of uptrend, as they call it. They improved every year, but they went from 91 to 90 wins – or 91 losses to 90 <laughs> losses. Uh, so you've kind of had that upward trend, and then uh, – I think that you've got a GM who's had easily of some of the kind of my God, I hate to say worst seasons, but they got, I'm really struggling to get out what my point is here. So I, I think he's had more hundred lost seasons. Well, he now has as many hundred lost seasons um, as or effectively hundred lost seasons as winning seasons. Um, and then you have all the other kind of bad seasons as well. It's just tough at some point to keep relying on that crutch. That is 14, 15 and say, uh, Oh, you know, well, we went to the world series. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's going to be 2021 next year. I mean, you're talking one, two, three, four, five, six seasons ago was 15. Um, at some point you, you've got to like have some results. I mean, you know, I can't think of the equivalent, but like if you think of, oh, like uh, Ruben Amaro, I mean, like, yeah, the Phillies won the World Series, but like he was canned not that shortly after um, when they weren't doing very good. And, you know, he didn't get an extra seven, eight years maybe on his life, uh, on his lifespan as a as a coach or excuse me, as a GM um, because they realized, OK, you know, thank you for your service. But, you know, it's that was six years ago at this point will be so. While I don't think he's going to be canned, I do think that um, Sherman would be the catalyst to do that. A new owner coming in and maybe wants to bring in his own guy. Um, that could be a catalyst. But obviously everything we've heard, Sherman has great respect for Moore. So I, I, I don't I don't expect the, the fire or the seat to be on fire just yet. Um, but I think the conversation starts in 2021 on if the leash is no longer long enough. Yeah, and I think maybe... If, if it seems like they're making progress and, you know, even if the win-loss total doesn't look that great, if, if they're, you know, if they improved like a 75-win season, but, you know, you see kind of the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel, you see some of these pitching prospects really start to look good, maybe Alberto Montesi takes a big step forward, then, it be, you know, maybe Bobby Witt Jr. has a really terrific season in the minors and is like one of the top minor league prospects in all of baseball then I think that would buy him a lot of a lot of time. I think you would say, okay, well, the rebuild looks like it's on its way. Um, now, if a lot of those pitchers get hurt or don't kind of stumble out of the gate, Bobby Witt Jr. doesn't, you know, kind of is underwhelming in the minors. Adoberto Montesi kind of hits like he did the first month of the season this year. Then, yeah, there's probably going to be some pressure, at the very least self-induced pressure, because I know Dayton Moore probably has a high, high uh, standard for himself. Uh, but then also, you know, you, I think you're right. You make a good point about having John Sherman in there now. Like, I'm sure I'm sure John Sherman, like, really appreciates Dayton Moore, knows he's a really smart baseball guy, and, and he won a, he did win a ring. Uh, at the same time, you know, like, the game passes everyone by in, in, a, in a way, and, um, you, know, there's, you know, there's a point where you kind of lose the zip on your fastball, and maybe Dayton Moore would be better at, at being, like, president of, you know, the club or something like that, where he can just kind of oversee the organizational stuff that he's best at while leaving more of the talent evaluation to other people, which perhaps that's kind of what they do now. I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, th- there might be kind of that kind of pressure if things aren't looking like they're, they're heading in the right direction. So I think this is a pretty pivotal year uh, for the Royals. Now, I think, you know, a year from now, we may very well say, 
yeah, things are looking pretty good. Uh, Dayton Morris here, probably here for life. This this rebuild looks like it's in a good spot. So I don't know, but um, but yeah, I don't you know I don't you know, obviously this they can't have several you know losing seasons really. I mean, just disastrously losing seasons and not expect some kind of pressure to start winning. Uh, Matthew, you know, I, we haven't really gotten too much into what we think the Royals will do this off season, and you know, by all accounts, it looks like it'll be a slow off season around baseball. I mean, the owners lost. Um, you know, maybe we don't accept that they, you know, their, their claims of, of losses, but no doubt they lost, you know, millions of dollars not having fans in the stands this year. Um, and so we're kind of expecting austerity around baseball. Uh, and Dayton Moore did talk a little bit about what he's expecting for, as far as payroll, saying, quote, we've talked about our budget uh, over a three-year period and what our projections will be, the experience level of our players, that naturally will keep our payroll down. I'm not really concerned with our payroll, but more about the players are we have going forward do they make sense for our team he also kind of dismissed free agency a little bit saying quote free agency has proven time and time again a failed way to build your team you build your team from your draft internationally and transitioning young players from your minor leagues to the big leagues we're in the process right now with some of our players and we will continue to do that so hearing what he said as far as you know budgets and payroll what are you expecting i mean you you kind of mentioned uh, you know getting a mid-tier free agent are we expecting someone like uh, you know, some someone that would cost you know millions of dollars, or are we looking more at the bargain bargain basement end of free agents? I think the Royals um, are are likely to not do a whole lot in terms of the free agent market. However, I think that the Royals are a little bit more of a wild card um, than people sort of give them credit for. I think that well, well, let's, let's just put it this way: I would not be surprised if. A, the Royals basically don't sign anyone for more than one year and a couple million dollars. That would not surprise me. It would also not surprise me if they spent 30 or $40 million on Jackie Bradley Jr. or a combination of two like $20 million guys. That wouldn't surprise me either. And it also would not surprise me if the Royals finally make some sort of trade. Uh, maybe that's Whit Merrifield. Maybe that's one of their pitchers um, for someone who can help them longer term. The Royals uh, are are in a sort of interesting spot here in that they are on the up and up, um, obviously because coming down from a 100 loss season, you have only only up to go. But the Royals have a, have the deepest pitching, uh, the the deepest minor league pitching staff that they've had in like decades, I think, and. While they don't have a single guy like a Zach Greinke type who is clearly an ace, they have multiple guys who have a lot of talent and who can probably stick as starters in the big leagues uh, for a while going forward. And that that depth is not nothing. And that depth will allow them to make a range of decisions depending on what they think. And we are not privy to the internal conversations going on there. I think both of you make good points regarding... John Sherman, if David Glass was here, I think the Royals would be, we would sort of all know what the Royals are going to do. But we don't really know what's going on with this ownership group um, and how it's going to affect how Dayton Moore operates. And it's entirely possible that John Sherman is basically, you know, poking Dayton Moore in the back and saying, hey, you know, let's, let's see some, let's see some wins here. Um, 
that's that's a that's a possibility. I I think what's most likely is the Royals probably don't do a lot. Maybe they sign a Jackie Bradley Jr. and that is their big thing that they can sort of hang their hat on. And be like, look, we're improving the team, and really that's kind of like a a low low downside move. You know, getting a, a mid tier free agent for a couple of years with their payroll flexibility they have going forward. That's not you know that's that's not going to kill them even if the the, the contract tanks. I mean, that's something that they can point to and like, look, we spent thirty million dollars on this guy. Um, so I think the Royals ha- are a little bit more of a wild card than than maybe they're given credit for. But at the same time, they're sort of like what you would expect them to do is is not a whole lot. But they have they certainly have options. Um, whether those are good options or the best options, you know, I don't know. One other possibility that I'm interested to see what what you two think about this is is extensions is the Royals have a history of extending players like Alex Gordon um, and Zach Greinke uh, are, are two of the, you know, the biggest ones. And the Royals uh, had Alex Gordon through 2015 because he signed that extension in 2011. He would have been a free agent beforehand. So the Royals know the value of extensions. They have three probably like sure thing. You would definitely want to extend those players on the, on the team right now in Mondesi, uh, Singer and uh, Brad Keller. And a couple of other guys that they could extend. I wonder if they um, might use their budget that they would have otherwise used to free agents uh, in extending some of those young players. I think that that could. I think that's the most likely um, move if they are going to spend millions of dollars is to uh, reward their own people for their performance and to lock up those guys long term, um, so that they don't really have to think about, you know, who they're going to you know, when those guys leave in a couple of years. So what do you think about that? Do you think that's likely? Do you think they're, they're not going to extend anything? Because last year they had a good uh, opportunity to extend some players and then they didn't. Well, I think that would probably be more likely than, than going out and signing a free agent um, just because he, you know, he talks about kind of building the team. I, mean, I think that the last part where he talked about free agency, not being a way to build a team, he's kind of said that the last couple of years. And I think getting burned maybe by a couple of free agent signings, uh, has kind of put that in his mind, and uh, and he's and I think he's right to an extent. I think you know free agents really are just kind of supplemental players you pull you build around your team if you're not going to get like the top tier guys. Um, you know it's nice to get a Jason Vargas to fill out your rotation, but you shouldn't rely on Jason Vargas to kind of be your stud in your rotation, right? Uh, and they can't go out and get like a Garrett Cole uh, to be their stud. So they you know these these are kind of complementary players, and so it probably makes more sense, especially right now where they are in the rebuild to. Um, kind of use that money instead towards extending guys and and going with the with you know going with the young players. Uh, but I don't know, Sean. What do you what do you think about uh, extending versus going for free agents or both? Yeah, I mean, I think there's guys you could look at as extension candidates. Um, you've got guys like Keller. Um, you could probably make a case for. I mean. It all depends on if you're bullish on the player or not, and you know it's it's the Royals organization. Or excuse me, it's not just this isn't just just Royals only, but every organization is bullish on their own players. Um, so I, I, that's kind of redundant to say, but or oxymoronic to say, but uh, yeah, I think that you could have a guy, someone like Keller, um, or if you think like a, a singer um, or um, or Bubik are you know truly good players and ones that you are going to want, you know, are A, going to be successful, and B, you're going to want to keep around. Um, you could see the 
buying out their RBers um, and everything kind of locking that in. Uh, and I mean, you could even be clever enough to front load it a little bit um, now that you've got some room now um, as opposed to later. So there are some guys I think would make sense. Uh, and frankly, that's probably more a responsible use of the money right now or of any potential money. Um, because I think as we talked about on the last podcast, uh, for the first time in quite a bit, the Royals don't have the commodity of playing time. Uh, they've got guys for pretty much every spot. So it's tough to bring someone in, be it a, a big free agent or, you know, not that we expect them to live in that realm, but it's tough for them to bring in any sort of free agent and think you're going to get the playing time of, you know, $12 million you might spend a year on someone like that. You probably aren't going to have room for them necessarily. So I think the money could be used for extensions. Um, I think it's case by case by basis. There's some guys that I would have no interest in extending. And then there's some guys that, yeah, I mean, you can make that case for, uh, particularly someone like Keller who's coming close to his RB years. Um, so uh, I think it does make sense. Yeah. You know, Hokias and, and David Leske both kind of written recently about, you know, if you're a team like the Royals, you could kind of take advantage of this market where a lot of teams are going into austerity mode. And if John Sherman, um, you know, did feel like he had the you know resources to, to kind of increase payroll, uh, even though they, they took some hits last year, um, this would be an opportunity to maybe get some bargains on the free agent market. Matthew, if, you know, if, if John Sherman kind of came to you and you're running the team and said, okay, we let's go spend some money this year. I mean, would that even be a prudent thing to do considering where the Royals are? And, you know, considering what Dayton Moore did say about free agency being kind of a flawed way to build your team. I mean, would, would that even make sense for the Royals to do considering where they are? Yeah, I think so. I mean, so there, there are two factors at play here. First is, are the Royals good enough to where, um, you know, some, some good free agents might put them over the hump. Um, and that combined with the, um, the expanded playoffs, I think maybe, uh, I think, you know, you know, this year, two teams made the playoffs who were under 500. Now it was a shortened season. We don't know if that'll happen over a full 162. Um, but I think the Royals could be good enough where some additional players uh, could help. Um, the Royals, uh, I, I, I mentioned in, in the piece that I wrote, the Royals had like had 11 players um, put up a negative wins above replacement. Um, among 36 players who accrued either uh, 10 plate appearances or more or pitched 10 innings or more. So 31% of their players um, had a, had a negative impact on the team, right? They cost them wins. So if for some of those 11 players, you can go out and you can get these free agents who are maybe outperforming the contract that they would get in this shortened season. You know, I think that they could be close enough um, depending on the breaks of a couple of things. You know, if the Royals are, a 75 true talent level team, then ostensibly they might be able to win 80 or 82. And then, you know, a couple of guys gets them over the hump to 86. You know, that's, that's a different situation than if you think they're a 70 true talent level team. Well, even if you get 10 wins out of your free agents, they're, they're not even 500. So, so that's the first part. The second part um, is that I think it's a good idea, but only if the market shakes out, like it is. If you think about Moneyball, Moneyball is not about on-base percentage specifically. Moneyball is about taking advantage of market inefficiencies. And if a whole bunch of other teams are just simply not paying for players, and there are players who are out there who can help your team at rates far lower than their objective value, that is you know, the definition of a market inefficiency. But the thing is, we won't know that until, you know, December comes in um, and the winter meetings, you know, the virtual winter meetings start 
start kicking off. It won't, we won't know that for months, but it could be that it is a market inefficiency. We just, you know, we'll have to sit on the sidelines and watch. And I don't even know if, you know, Dayton Moore knows he, in the press conference, he mentioned how the trade market's on ice because it's really hard to identify, you know, how good players actually were, especially minor leaguers. So I, you know, with this may be a really long game and we may not know for months. Yeah, I think just because of the uncertainty over stuff like that, they haven't seen the minor leaguers. Uh, and I think teams still don't really know what their financial situations are. I mean, Dave Moore also talked about they don't know how arbitration is going to be dealt with. Like, are they going to base it on the 2020 numbers? Is it going to be based on prorated 2020 numbers? Like, how do you account for that? I'm, I still haven't seen how they're going to deal with, like, incentives and op- investing options and stuff like that. I don't know if all that's been resolved with the, the union. Um, on top of that, I, I didn't even realize, I guess I read this a couple weeks ago or last week uh, regarding the raise, but apparently there wasn't any revenue sharing this year and there likely won't be any revenue sharing next year. So I don't know if that's that, that could be a huge, um, uh, a huge factor in how much the Royals decide they want to spend this, this winter. And so, you know, that coupled with the fact that they are still rebuilding kind of makes me think it's going to be really quiet um, as far as free agency. You know, maybe we'll see a trade. But it's probably going to be a pretty minor one, maybe acquire an outfielder or something like that, uh, because I think Sean's right. They, they kind of got mo- they have most of their holes filled with internal options, and they don't really have a whole lot of areas of need that, you know, is, if you're still rebuilding a team and trying to get a good look at guys like Franchi Cordero and Edward Oliveras and guys like that, Nicky Lopez maybe. Um, so I, I expect this to be a pretty quiet off season. Most of the time, we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it. Then, in that moment, you don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done, and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of, like, afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts. Uh, but I think one thing I did kind of want to touch on, uh, Sean, is the really interesting thing that um, Dayton Moore said at kind of the end of his uh, his press conference about being more. Uh, he's, he was talking about the Rays, and he said that they quote done an excellent job of developing and maintaining pitching, and they're very transactional. They're more transactional than we are. I've been criticized for that many times that we stay for players a little too long. Sometimes it works out great. Sometimes it doesn't. We're one of the least transactional organizations in baseball. But as we go forward, I have to be op- more open-minded to being more transactional. Uh, I thought it was kind of an interesting quote. Um, maybe we will see an evolution of Dayton more. Uh, what was your, kind of your uh, impression of, of hearing that from Dayton? Yeah, I mean, I guess, what did you guys... So let me make sure that I took it the same way he meant it, or you guys took it as. What do you think he meant by transactional? I think he meant more, kind of more the... Uh, kind of the, the cold hard business of baseball where you know you cut a guy you trade a guy it's it's just it's not personal it's business where i think he's more run the organization um as i'm friends you know i'm i'm a, I'm a friend i'm a mentor to some of these players yeah. and i'm going to be loyal to them 
and uh, we're building a family here. Yeah, that's that's kind of how I was thinking too. I, I thought of it in the sense of transactional, like, uh, uh, yeah, not just going to trade a guy to trade a guy, or we kind of stick with our guys a little longer. Um, I mean, that's kind of par for the course. I get it. Um, you know, I'm not sure if anybody. I don't know if there's been a large contingent of Royals fans um, that have really necessarily wanted him to be transactional in the sense of like um, Jerry Depoto, right? A guy who wakes up, grabs his phone, calls a couple GMs, see who the heck wants to trade something every morning. Um, I think I I think there are the times where he's you know been late to pull the trigger on stuff, and you know we've been vocal about that. Um, but then you know he's given his guys time, and you know there's there's been nothing nothing but positive things said about Dayton Moore as kind of a baseball person uh from like a the family standpoint and kind of as a, a great character in baseball um but uh, yeah I mean I don't know if I want them necessarily to be more transactional but it would be nice if they would maybe pull the trigger a little bit more on stuff and you know I'm not expecting him to go flip Merrifield and Perez and everybody uh next week but it seems like sometimes the what I would say correct option or that we think is the correct option usually doesn't happen because he's kind of a little bit um, stuck in that kind of familial sense, which is a good thing at sometimes and sometimes it's not. Yeah, it's good. It's great when he sticks with a guy like Mike Mustakas and Mike Mustakas after like four years of kind of struggling figures it out and and turns into an all star. It's not great when. And we don't know the situations, you know, maybe there, there weren't trades available, but it's not great when he kind of holds on to a player too long uh, because he feels loyalty to that player. Or, you know, like, um, you know, just a guy that's really struggling out there and and they need to get someone better out there and, and date more kind of sticks with them too long. I think we've seen situations like that. Matthew, what's, what was kind of your impression of should should date more be more transactional as a general manager? Well, I think it was odd when he he talked about uh, sticking with players because um, that's not how I would sort of consider transactional. I would uh, I would maybe define transactional like um, the a transactional team is more willing to consider trades um, and um, new players in positions of need um, than a non-transactional team. And what I mean by that is. Uh, a non-transactional team like the Royals, they don't like trading established players for non-baseball reasons. But a transactional team is more willing to see players um, as names on a spreadsheet that can be moved and as just pure assets rather than just being just being baseball players. And if you look at the Rays, the Rays have a very, very, very long history of, of really solid drafting development and then they trade that player when they hit our beers um, and that is an extreme type of transactional approach right to trade nearly all of your homegrown players when they get too expensive versus what the Royals did with Hosmer uh, and, and and moose and Kane which is they just let them walk and they, they collected the, the comp picks when they signed elsewhere um, I I think there's probably a middle ground. It is not really fun as a fan of a team to watch all your good players be traded away. You know, that, that that's that's not really fun. Part of the, the fun of, of rooting for a sports team is rooting for specific players over years. And if you develop a star and you get two years of that star or two or three years of that above average player and then they're gone, that doesn't really encourage you to keep watching um, 
because you know that players you'll get attached to are going to get you know shifted somewhere else. But on the other hand, I think that you could do better in understanding that fans will make attachments to players, even different players, if the team is good, right? So, yeah, sure, Whit Merrifield may be uh, a fan favorite now, but if they trade Whit Merrifield and they get a couple of guys who get them um, a better chance to win, you know, that that's, that's a good outcome because ultimately more people watch the Royals when they're winning than when they're not. So I think there is a middle ground um, where you can be transactional um, when it's when it's opportunistic for you, and also still recognize the value that keeping a player has um, a player like Mike Mustakis or Whit Merrifield who stayed in the system for a long time. The Royals could have included Whit Merrifield as a, like a player to be named, named player to be named later in a trade, but you know they didn't. They kept him. That worked out. So there's a middle ground and. I think the Royals can move closer to that middle ground and still stay the Royals versus, you know, just Midwest Rays. I do also wonder if like a factor is that before their homegrown players were primarily position players like Hosmer and Moose, uh, you know, later Escobar, I guess, and Kane. Um, And now they're the group that is coming up. They're, they're very pitching heavy. And, you know, I think we've seen pitchers maybe are a little less reliable. Um, They're, you know their uh, performance varies a little bit more from year to year, and there's a lot more risk of injury. I mean, I think you look at one of the, some of the transactional teams. The, the, one of the teams that comes to mind is the Indians, and they've just traded you know three of their best pitchers, three of the best pitchers in the league, uh, including you know two Cy Young winners in Trevor Bauer, Mike Clevenger, and um, uh, who am I blanking? Oh, uh, Corey Kluber, um, and, and two of those guys broke down almost immediately. I mean. Uh, so it's it's kind of like you want to kind of hold on to these pitchers until uh, you you, got, you have to time it just right before they they're not really valuable anymore, and that's kind of hard to do. Maybe you have to be a little more transactional with those, those guys than a guy like uh, you know Hosmer Mustakas, who you know is probably at least going to give you you know 500 solid at bats every year, uh, 600 solid at bats every year, and kind of be a little a little more reliable in your in your uh, starting lineup. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see going forward, and and uh, you know we expect maybe like after Thanksgiving. Uh, things will start heating up uh, around baseball, uh, and, and we'll see if the Royals end up getting involved at all. Uh, let's kind of wrap things up this week with our Royals review reviews. Matthew, why don't you kick it off? Yeah, for uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, I have a music degree, and I play the French horn, and I play in orchestras and wind ensembles and whatnot. Uh, so you might expect that I am really sort of up on uh, the music, both classical and pop music. Um, and the answer to that is much less than you would expect. Uh, my, my music listening, I tend to, um, listen to things for a long time. Um, and I listen to things, I'm an old school listener. I like to listen to albums versus, you know, just songs or playlists. So it takes me a long time to work through stuff. Uh, so very rarely do I have like a, oh my goodness, this album that came out, this is the one that you need to look into. Um, but I was playing, uh, Tony Hawk Pro Skater Remaster, um, and the song came on uh, that I re- that I liked, um, and then I looked it up, and it was a song by this uh, this rapper apparently, Machine Gun Kelly, who I confess I had never heard of before uh, I saw that name pop up. He 
is uh, is a rapper from Ohio, and he um, released like a pop punk album called Tickets to My Downfall, um, and it's really really good. You know, uh, growing up, I I listened to almost exclusively Christian music, so it's still a little bit of a shock when I hear you know naughty words being spoken in songs. <laughs> um, and there is some of there's certainly some of that, and it's not something I would have bothered listening to ten years ago because it would have you know really turned me off. Um, but as I, you know, sort of grow older and, and mellow out on my, on my, uh, those kinds of ways, um, it's, it's really, it's really great. Um, it's a really great pop punk album, um, sort of like a throwback album. It feels like an early 2000s album. There is some, a little bit of his, you know, R&B um, and rap influences in a couple of the tracks. But overall, it's a really good album. If you don't mind uh, some curse words, which there are on pretty much every track, you know, whatever it is, what it is. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's an excellent album, um, and it has some really good songs on it. Um, so that is my Royals review. Review. What was the name of the album again? It's called Tickets to My Downfall. Yeah, I can't say that. Uh, that's in my wheelhouse uh, because I'm old, <laughs> but uh, I'll definitely have to check that out. Uh, Sean, what do you have for us this week? Uh, so I braved and. Um went to a movie theater for it was my wife's birthday um and it was just us in the theater it's the only reason we went um or it ended up being just us we assumed it would be and when we bought tickets there's nobody else um so we went to uh, a theater late at night uh, for her birthday um we saw a movie called let him go um kevin costner diane lane um god the guy from burn notice i can't think of his name um now I'm going to look it up right now. Uh, it, it, gosh, uh, Jeffrey Donovan. Uh, and uh, it, it was good. Um, I haven't seen a Kevin Costner. I haven't seen a new Kevin Costner movie in Lord knows how long. Um, and I'm not even sure I've seen a Diane Lane movie in, in, period in 10 years or something. Uh, so, but it, it's uh, it's about a North Dakota um, family where the son and daughter-in-law have a child and the son dies this is no spoilers it's the whole point of the movie the son dies um and they basically the the mom excuse me the the daughter-in-law remarries and into this kind of evil kind of family and they take the grandson and so they go and try and bring back the grandson to their house uh or bring back to uh bring back the grandson to the grandparents house and um, it's just kind of an abusive house that the, the, the mother moves to. So, um, it was really, really good. Maybe you want to go buy a 10 gallon, um, hat, um, and go visit North Dakota. Cause it was just the awesome landscape set in the sixties, I think maybe late fifties. Um, but, uh, just a, a really, really good movie. Nothing deep. Um, just kind of a great family about, um, love of your family and the things that they would do. And it's, it's fantastic. I, one of the probably one of the better movies I've seen this year and really, really enjoyed it and totally wasn't expecting to enjoy it because, again, it's a brand new Kevin Costner movie. And he and like Mel Gibson and uh, Bruce Willis have kind of fallen in that. What movie is this kind of thing now? It's like, OK, they're putting out a random crime movie every like three months, it seems. Uh, but this one was was pretty good. So let him go. Um, probably is going to hit the streaming services soon because it's I think it was like a fairly limited release and, you know because of COVID, everything's kind of getting pushed to that, but uh, it was good. What did you think of being in the theater again? Is it something, do you realize how much you missed it or were you, were you nervous at all being inside? Um, 
I, I mean, I was nervous that other people were going to show up, and thankfully, um, nobody did. Um, I did go see Tenet. That was in July, um, and COVID had calmed down slightly, at least at that point. There were a couple people in the theater with Tenet, um, so that was one that I knew I was going to go see in theater. Every other movie I would not go see, um, and we just did this one because we figured there was not going to be anybody else there. Um, and you know, we were thankfully correct. Uh, so that kind of eased us and we kept our mask on the whole time. So, um, it, it's definitely a little nervous. Uh, you definitely want to stay away from people. And, um, like with tenant, I think someone had seats near us and they just said, okay, we're going to move a little further away because there was nobody really else in the theater. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I've, I've seen two movies in the theaters now. Uh, and I don't, I don't plan on seeing another one um, until kind of everything dies down more. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a different experience, and it's definitely one that I love going to the movies and seeing movies in theater, um, particularly kind of ones made for the big screen, like Tenet would be. Let Him Go kind of is because it's a uh, these great South Dakota landscapes that you get to see, um, and horses and everything. So it's one that I think is best enjoyed in theater. Um, so a uh, little little nervous, but it ended up being good. And it, long story short it was her birthday so we had free tickets so that was kind of nice as well that's really the main reason we went is because it was free yeah there's definitely some movies that have to be seen i think in the theater and uh so it's good you got an opportunity to do that and hopefully you know like now there's the vaccines and in place hopefully we can at least start eyeing a return to the theaters maybe by next spring or next summer and and, uh man hopefully the theaters will be packed by then (laughs) yeah you know max i thought it'd be i thought not having theaters would be a reprieve for you because you don't have to go see trolls 2 in theaters you can (laughs) you know you don't longer have to sit through those kids movies well we now we got disney plus (laughs) we've got to go through all those but uh yeah it hasn't been it's actually been pretty nice to enjoy movies with the kids these lately so uh my uh royals review reviews this week is uh i wanted to highlight the work of the good people at the Seamheads negro leagues database there's an article at MLB.com by Mac- Michael Clare about some of the work they're doing. Um, you know, I, I think I'm sure many of you know that the statistics kept uh, at the Negro League uh, of the Negro Leagues is incomplete at best. Um, but that doesn't mean they're lost for forever. Um, Gary Ashwell and a group of researchers, volunteer researchers, are kind of still pouring through newspapers, scorebooks, photo albums, anything they can get their hands on that have some sort of account of the games played in the Negro Leagues. Um, and they've been able to piece together a lot of statistics uh, and uh, give us a better uh, better look at how good some of the players in the Negro Leagues were. Um, and I think it's just, you know, number one, it's great that they're doing the work, and it's, it's great that we our understanding of baseball history is always changing because we are learning more and more about um, about its history. But I think it also helps illustrate, you know, I think sometimes stat nerds get a bad rap for, you know, all we care about is, is, is the stats. And of course, that's not true. I you know some of the biggest stat nerds, like, you know, Bill James is a huge baseball historian and fan, and he loves, you know, he loves the history of the game. Uh, you know, I, lots of other people that are way into the stats, Mike Petrillo, you know, loves the beauty of the game itself. But, you know, I, I think it really highlights that everyone loves baseball stats. I mean, we all think of, you know, Hank Aaron, 755 home runs, Ted Williams hitting 406. And when we don't have those stats, like in the Negro Leagues, I think we don't really fully understand the history of the league. And I think that's part of why, at least, 
um, I think people kind of forget about the Negro Leagues or, or ignore its history uh, because they don't. We don't have really good stats that can say you know we can, we can put up Josh Gibson's career home runs against Babe Ruth's and and Hank Aaron's or or uh, you know Cool Papa Bell stolen base numbers or Satchel Paige's win loss record. And so uh, I really want to salute uh, everyone um, working at the Team Heads and uh, they you know and all the work they're doing and and if you if you can help out and uh, I'm sure they can take more volunteers. But um, definitely some great work. And I, I'm really curious to see you know all the stats they come up with to get a better understanding of, of the Negro Leagues and give a greater appreciation to the players that have, have kind of been forgotten in history and, and really deserve uh, a better recognition than they've received. So, um, Well, that'll do it for us this week. Uh, thanks to Sean and Matthew for being on the show, and thanks to our readers and listeners for visiting our site. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.